I'm Madeline Jane Abel. Welcome to Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy. This week, we are in the world of film noir. Cunning rage and clear-eyed victims cast a very different shadow than the shoulder-padded dresses of Adrian's Letty Linton confections. Crawford and other stars of the 1930s transition from day to night with ease. Barbara Stanwyck is among them. There are three Stanwyck films I want to talk about under the heading of noir in the coming weeks, including Double Indemnity, which perhaps is the most obvious, Clash by Night, which is a great example of the difference a decade makes, 1940s versus the 1950s, and finally, Sorry Wrong Number. Sorry Wrong Number and all of its iterations are going to be the focus of this episode. It is one of my favorite films. In fact, the radio play it is based on is in heavy rotation in my car. In preparation for this episode, I have been attempting to lock down the reasons behind my deep admiration for this story and film. My first introduction to the story is the Murder, She Wrote episode from season three called Crossed Up. This episode is based on the original film. Many Murder, She Wrote episodes are reboots of classic films. We will get to my love of Murder, She Wrote, and specifically this episode, later in the show. Then came the made-for-TV movie starring Lonnie Anderson in 1989. We will also spend a significant amount of time on that gem, especially given her character's name is Madeline. The drama of all four versions primarily take place in a woman's bedroom, specifically in her bed on her telephone, making her voice and intonations the true teller of the tale. In the film version, you get the added artistry of matching her voice to her home, to her bed, and clothes. In the 1948 film version, starring Barbara Stanwyck, the set decoration and styling is the stuff of legend. Layered lace bedclothes in a backdrop of pillows and curtain flounces make her kind of bedridden my life goal. The original radio play and the screenplay were written by Lucille Fletcher. The screenplay is nearly word for word the original radio play. And in fact, there is a radio version starring Stanwyck on Stars on Suspense, a radio program. That version, I think, is available on Spotify, and if it is, you should totally listen to it. The plot is a bit heavy at moments, and as many times as I have seen it, I often forget the details of the husband's motivations for his crimes. But there is, but here is the most detailed version of a synopsis that Patience allows. Stanwyck plays Leona Stevenson, wife of Henry Stevenson, played by Burt Lancaster. Leona is the cough drop queen and heiress of her father JB's company. JB is played by Ed Begley. Leona has become a shell of her former self since her marriage. She suffers from a nervous condition and is a self-professed invalid. The nervous condition is anxiety, but is diagnosed as a heart condition until later in the film, when her new doctor tells her husband, without her being present, I might add, that there is, quote, nothing wrong with her. Babied by her father and losing control over her husband, Leona slips further into emotional distress. Henry resents working for his father-in-law and desperately wants to forge his own path. Lancaster is perfection in this role because he is so obnoxiously male. He lumbers around acting like it is his God-given right to lord over his wife. It is a joy to watch her lord over him through all means accessible to her. In the 1989 TV movie version, Leona, or Madeline as she's called in that one, is a long-suffering sweetheart. 
who isn't allowed to show anything but devotion to her husband out of fear of her character being unlikable. This reflected the social values of the time, which was 1989, the very end of the Reagan era. In the 1940s version, no one cares if Leona is unlikable, and quite frankly, I find her very likable. One night, when Leona is left alone by her husband on the maid's night out of all things, she overhears a murder plot when her phone line is crossed with someone else's. For those of you who don't understand how switchboards work, or how a line could be crossed with another one, I suggest watching the, the musical number Pinned from Bye Bye Birdie. I'm sure it is available on YouTube. Uh, that should give you a sense of the chaos of phone calls in the days of operator and party lines. Another excellent resource is Pillow Talk, the plot of which hinges on a party line. Uh, okay, back to the movie. She reports the cross lines to the police to no avail. The rest of the film is her bedside investigation into what turns out to be her own husband's plot to murder her. Leona's old rival, Sally, played by Anne Richards, haphazardly stumbles on the murder plot. Anne's husband works for the district attorney and has strangely brought up Leona and her husband in relation to a case he is working on. He won't tell his wife anything, and honestly, his affect is a little too casual. Anne takes it upon herself, oh, I'm sorry, Sally takes it upon herself to warn both husband and wife, acting to further destabilize Leona as she tries to desperately unravel the murder plot. Her insertions do little except to create a holier-than-thou air around Sally. I don't like Sally, by the way, and a cloud of infidelity-heavy suspicion around Henry. The third scene of the film opens on a glamorous Leona laying in bed talking to the operator on the telephone. She is trying to reach her husband, who promised to be home promptly at six, and whose office is always closed by that time. She is laying propped up against a damask upholstered headboard with matching curtains behind the bed and an oval mirror secured over the bed on top of the curtains. She is wearing a silk chiffon nightgown under a bolero-style lace bed coat, secured at her throat with a large diamond brooch. She wears a matching diamond tennis bracelet over the cuff of her lace bed coat. Her wedding ring gleams gaudily as she lights a cigarette and complains to the operator about being an invalid left alone. At this very moment of admitting to her vulnerability, albeit with an air of performativity, her telephone line crosses with another party's line. She overhears a conversation between the two men, two men plotting to murder a woman that very night. When the call ends, Leona desperately tries to explain to the operator, and later the police, the seriousness of what she has learned. Dismissed and angry, Leona screams into the phone, and I'm quoting, A human being, a woman, is going to be killed somewhere, somewhere in this very city, and their murder is going to take place tonight at 11.15 p.m. Now, isn't that good enough reason? For goodness sake, you just sit there and let people die. She hangs up the phone in a fury. I love this bit of dialogue because she clearly realizes and articulates that the life of a woman is of very little value. Initially, it feels like perhaps she is saying a woman is more valuable than just a human being. But when that gets no traction with the detective, she comes to the conclusion that they will just let people die, especially a woman. If they had known then that there was a domestic angle to the potential crime, they probably would have just hung up on Leona. 
Post-phone call, the rest of her convalescing bedchambers is revealed. Her bed is catty-corner to a gracious vanity that is somewhat diminished by a large portrait of her father hanging over it. The bed is capped with two tables and an additional tincture and pill cart that hovers slightly over the surface of the bed. The look as a whole is that of a hysterical housewife. Stanwick teaches us how to be incapacitated to greatest effect. My own tincture cart sits at the end of my bed, although adorned with more flower remedies than laudanum, but it still has the glamour that bedside suffering demands. The hysterical woman effect was in large measure achieved by the costume designer Edith Head, who in my estimation excels at just that, subtle cues of characters through dress. She doesn't work to grant access or power through costume the way Adrian did, but instead cues the audience to the character's quirks through clothes. Decor does just as much to indicate emotional instability through over-the-top femininity, which should, like the origins of the word hysterical, tell you something about how womanhood is viewed generally. Beatrim Granger did the set deck under the direction of Earl Hedrick to great effect. Leona's adept ability to take the expectations of her role and in life and use it to her greatest advantage is on full display in the flashback scene initiated by Leona's old rival, Sally, played by Ann Richards. You, you remember me mentioning Sally. She is the goody two shoes who acts in service of everyone, but herself. Leona's memory whirls past Sally and to the argument she had with her father, JB about marrying Henry. J.B. argued that the man is a no-good layabout without any decent prospects. He finishes his oratory with the reassuring words that if Leona really did love this man, then of course it would be different. Fireworks simmer and crack in the heart of Leona. She responds with a fiercely feminine performance made all the more powerful in the confines of the Grecian goes hunting decor of her father's Chicago mansion, which I somehow suspect has a San Simeon connection. That connection is a kind of gilded cage for his wife, self, and or in this case, his daughter, who has learned to manipulate the bars enough to get out through an an ill-advised marriage, mind you. She accuses her father of trapping her in a spinster role solely to serve him in the well-being of his company. She says, quote, leave me alone. You don't care about me. You're thinking of nothing but yourself and your business. You're hateful, selfish, and hateful. (laughs) Okay, sorry. JB attempts to placate her emotional outburst, but fails horribly. She screams, don't touch me. JB finally caves into the easiest solution presented, as opposed to a more laborious approach of providing structure and clear boundaries for his adult daughter. Boundaries would have actually indicated that he loved her, not as she had thought, as some kind of prop or company, but as a real person. This scene is played like Leona has a history of being an emotionally manipulative female, when the connotation of such a word were always almost negative. I am of the opinion that Leona is attempting to free herself, but later realizes she doesn't know how and simply collapses into a nervous condition and right into the arms of a weak-willed murderer. Leona and Henry marry in the following scene. Mm. How many times have I screamed, don't touch me, at the top of my lungs in a public place to a person I know or don't know? Eight, maybe 12 times? It would be really easy to dismiss Leona as hysterical or spoiled, but in reality, 
She is smarter than the men around her and has been actively shut down by them. So you know what? Let Leona fucking scream. As we will later learn from the Lonnie Anderson version of this story, it doesn't really matter what you do, how good, blonde, or lovely your lace bedclothes are, you're still going to wind up murdered by your idiot husband. The film's strange insertion of Leona's old rival, Sally, and her secretive district attorney husband has the vague whiff of the quote-unquote good woman trope. When I say good woman, I am referring to the made-up ideal that a good woman can turn around any man and that in fact men are like children and it is and it is their mothers and wives fault if they murder you fortunately for us the argument that if henry had just married the devoted and good one he would not be a drunk a failure a thief and a murderer is difficult to buy by the time leona draws her last breath in the last scene of the film Leona, still in bed and completely fear-stricken, receives a much-anticipated call from her husband. Henry makes some semi-plausible excuses for his absence and pretends to not know Leona is alone in the house. She breaks the make-believe with the admission that she knows there is somebody in the house. She asks Henry point-blank if he has been stealing from her father's company. Henry, from his cramped quarters in an undisclosed telephone booth, is dripping in sweat and looks like a panicked child. Not at all a man that deserves Leona's respect. Leona expresses regret for, quote, being so horrible, explaining that she was afraid of losing his love if she ever had it at all. Henry admits the murder admits to the murder plot just as a shadow becomes visible from Leona's position in her bed. A man is coming up the staircase to her bedroom. Leona screams and begs for her life as an unseen stranger takes it from her. He hangs up the phone, and when Henry calls back and the phone is answered, the voice on the other end is not Leona's, but the murderer saying, wrong number. Leona's deathbed conversation with Henry reframes her manipulations as a direct result of the other man that failed her, her father. Henry's confessions reveals reveals cowardice, but very little responsibility or the backbone to go along with it. Fortunately, the regret and horror of having your wife murdered in her own bed while she was asking for your help will forever ruin his life. Hmm. The beginning of my awareness of Sorry Wrong Number started with the 1987 Murder, She Wrote episode called Crossed Up. It was my favorite episode as a child. Before I found the original 48 film or even made the connection to the Lonnie Anderson made-for-TV movie, mainly because I didn't know the title of the film, so when Anderson's version came along, I just thought that's just like the Murder, She Wrote episode. But of course, they were both just like the 1948 film, Sorry, Wrong Number, which was actually just like the radio play it had been adapted from. My discovery process aside, let's look at the wonderful season three, episode 13 of Murder, She Wrote, entitled Crossed Up, an obvious pun about wires being crossed. A hurricane is coming to the sleepy port town of Cabot Cove, Maine. Jessica, played by Angela Lansbury, is bedridden with a back injury and relegated to reading and writing in bed while her nephew, Grady, played by Michael Horton, takes care of her. Jessica's telephone line is crossed with another, and she overhears a murder plot. Using Grady, Seth Hazlitt, the town doctor, played by William Wyndham, and the local sheriff, Jessica is able to find and catch a killer from her bed. I'm sure you can, tech, 
detect the quote unquote, doing it on your own vibe, 1980s update of the plot that, uh, that is now present. Sorry. It is worth mentioning here. If you are not familiar with the murder, she wrote, if you're not familiar with murder, she wrote that Jessica is a middle-aged widow. This gives her character the ability to move in the world and in television in a very different way than a young woman or a woman with a husband. She has, a sort, she has sort of grown out of the societal expectations and mores set for other women. This is what makes this show so deeply compelling as an educational tool for young women, given that you actually see a woman whose integrity and actions are the main focus. In the opening sequence, Jessica is sitting up in her bed, surrounded by magazines and galley proofs. She is wearing a pink satin pajama set with a floral pink and white robe cinched at the waist. Her feet are covered with a 1930s quilt in a windmill design, and her head is propped up with flounced pillowcases in off-white. The four-poster bed in blonde wood is adorned with pale peach curtains pulled back and tied at each post. The bedside table is covered with a large piece of white lace, a floral mug full of writing utensils, a stack of books, a remote control, an era-specific 1980s lamp with a heather-hued shade sits immediately to the right on the table. The walls are wallpapered and bordered with a pink and green floral design, which was the height of country chic in 1987. Jessica brings the corded phone into bed with her. She picks up the receiver and dials, but when she puts the phone to her ear, she hears a conversation between two men, one with a raspy voice. She says, hello, hello. The raspy voice man says, the old man must be killed tonight. Jessica's window flies open from the storm's force, making a significant noise. Jessica starts calling for her nephew, but when he comes, he goes straight to the window, and by the time Jessica hands him the receiver, the line is dead. Seth walks into the room, and Jessica hurriedly explains what happened to him and Grady, but neither of them believe her. They think the full week in bed has made her delusional, cabin fever-induced hysteria. She immediately tries to reach Sheriff Amos, Amos Tepper, played by Tom Bosley, but cannot get a line out. Grady and Seth promise they will reach Amos on her behalf, but they do but they do so with a thick coating of condescension. Jessica rolls her eyes wildly in response to their placating tone. Of course she does. Jessica knows when she is right. She has come to accept the patent dismissal by men. She regards their bullshit without internalizing it. The difference between her and Stanwick's character in Sorry Wrong Number is simply the absence of a husband to torture and gaslight her. As a widow, Jessica gets all the respect and position of a married woman, but is completely free to follow her own rules. Jessica taught me to trust myself. She also taught me to assume someone cut the power line when the power goes out, which happens later in the episode. I saw Jessica reflected in my own mother, making her decor and clothing choices really weighted with meaning for me. Jessica's moral integrity is of the highest order. The integri that integrity lends itself to objects associated with her. Her robe is a great example. My mother loved robes. I own over 30 robes currently of all different types and from all different eras. It is the single most comforting piece of clothing. My mom and I would pretend to ice skate around the house in a robe and socks to musicals when I was a child. I always wanted a robe that matched hers, but I always ended up borrowing one of hers instead of getting one of my own. At the end of the day, I would try to curl up next to my mom on the couch wearing said robe, but she would send me away saying my elbows were pokey and it was her quiet time. I don't think Jessica would have done that. I'm just saying.
I am pretty sure I'm not the only person who grew up in the 1980s or 1990s who loves a robe. It is our version of what Stanwyck did in the original film with her lace bolero jacket and chain smoking. Reading magazines in bed in a Jessica robe seems like the epitome of adult womanhood to me, a birthright of hysteria turned sensible sleuthing brought to you by the heroine of network television, Jessica Fletcher. Another heroine of network TV, albeit a blonder one, is Lonnie Anderson of Three's Company fame, a show that is so painfully sexist that a rewatch is akin to torture porn. But that is no shade to Miss Anderson or either of her co-stars. Lonnie stars in the USA Network 1989 made-for-TV movie version of Sorry, Wrong Number. Her character's name, as previously mentioned, is Madeline, the updated Leona of the original film. First off, I love that her name is Madeline. It is absolutely perfect. I also want to make note of the icon-level hair she has in this film, hair that proved to be very influential for me later in my life. I found a photo of me in 2007 or somewhere around there with strikingly similar hair and facial expression as Anderson's character. I posted it on the show's Instagram at Window Dressing Podcast if you're interested in seeing that. The plot of this version differs slightly from the original. The updates are a quote-unquote sign of the times, capitalism, that the Murder, She Wrote episode did not suffer from, even though it aired just two years before this film. Anderson's Madeline, the Leona character, is what I would categorize categorize as a long-suffering sweetheart, which I previously mentioned, as opposed to Stanwyck's hysterical heiress act. Madeline is made to be sympathetic, not in spite of her money, but because of it. Her husband, Charlie Stevenson, played by Carl Weintraub, I apologize if I mispronounce that, is not a man who wants to do it on his own, as Henry Stevenson from the original film did, if not for his controlling money, money-grubbing wife. The updated husband is drawn as an ungrateful cheater turned drug-addled pusher, one which Lonnie defends and loves graciously and endlessly all while looking fabulous and not smoking. Her quote-unquote heart condition is more clear-cut anxiety in this version caused by her womanly inability to express herself clearly. The woman of the Reagan era 80s isn't even allowed to be coquettish for fear of emasculating dear daddy or husband, at least in this USA made-for-TV movie version of womanhood. One of my favorite changes to the plot that I find endlessly clever, given that Madeline is the cough drop queen, is that her husband doesn't make bad investments or steal money from the company as what in the original film. Um, He instead produces drugs, takes them and sells them like codeine based opiates, like lean, basically, that he himself gets hooked on. It's it's a fun little update that feeds into dare culture and the demonizing of drug addicts as poor and lazy capitalism reigns in this film. Okay. So now let's get to the look and feel of things. The costume designer was Shelley Komarov and the set deck was Carol Lavoy. Komarov costumed another made for TV movie starring Lonnie Anderson in 1995 called Deadly Family Secrets. She puts Anderson in a red dress in that film that is the epitome of 90s lady in red. Both costumes and decor are on full display in the dazzling opening sequence of this film. Set on New Year's Eve, evidenced by the New York City nightlife montage that comes before, we enter a dimly lit apartment scene that welcomes you with a roaring fire and a ringing telephone. 
Madeline's bedroom glows warmly with peach on peach walls and floor. Her bed is all white, as is her nightgown. Her hair is the perfect marriage between the peach backdrop and the white of her clothes. She had that that perfect, slightly brassy blonde that felt warm and bright all at once. That combo has been sadly replaced with the harsh white blonde of current fashion, the kind of platinum blonde. She answers the phone. It is her father, who, unlike the original film, is at home alone, sensibly worrying about his daughter, whom he finds to be left alone by her ne'er-do-well husband on New Year's Eve, of all nights. In the original film, the father was a kind of aging party boy who feigned loneliness all while a powdered puff blonde stumbled around his office. Madeline covers for Charlie, her husband, in a saccharine tone that is only made up for by the real sugarcane dust that makes up the billowing sleeves of her slightly sheer but still demure nightgown. She gets off the phone with her father, insisting Charlie is on his way home. As soon as she hangs up, she tries to call her husband's private line at the office. The line is busy, so this is the important telephone company-related update. She rings the operator to break through the line. This is to accommodate the fact that there is not, it is not 1948 anymore and there are no switchboards, and the operator is sort of a vanity service by this time. The operator informs Madeline that there will be a charge for an emergency breakthrough. Madeline agrees to the charge. I should also explain that a breakthrough is when the operator literally breaks through an in-progress call in an emergency. Obviously, none of this is true anymore. Just think of the implications for women being stalked, which, by the way, was not illegal at this time. We will get to the advent of those laws later this season. It's really interesting. During the call, Madeline's line crosses with someone else's, and she overhears a conversation about, what else? A murder plot. Distressed, she calls the operator back to try to get the number so she can ring it back. This is the same essential scene as the 1948 film and the Murder, She Wrote episode. But the set deck, costumes, and Lonnie Anderson herself go from Stanwyck's hysterical woman to sexy glamour puss who knows her place fully made up in an overlined top lip that is reminiscent of a Lisa Rinna lip flip with a Taylor Armstrong level vulnerability, the Real Housewives aesthetic, at least visually, is on full display here. We all know that Rinna is a bad bitch who does not play at placating men, so I truly am just talking visually in that comparison, although Real Housewives fans will probably agree that the Taylor Armstrong affect is an incredibly apt comparison here. I'll post pictures to the podcast Instagram to fully illustrate this point. Anderson's bed has some magazines and a single bottle of pills on it for her heart condition and not the full apothecary tray that Stanwyck's character Leona had, which not only was fun, but also indicated a level of fussiness and decor that we do not get with the single pill bottle of Anderson's Madeline. Instead of a diamond brooch fastening a lace bolero bed coat at her throat, Madeline, and, Madeline is wearing an ultra femme heart necklace that looks like it either came from Zales or is the inspiration for everything that jeweler has ever designed. The heart is indicative of her softness while still signaling wealth. And remember, this is 1989, so that kind of wealth is aspirational and a signal of good morals. All of this in accordance with the politics of the Reagan-era capitalism that is deeply entrenched in the culture at the time. The room is ultra-feminine, 
whilst still being sleek, borderline minimalist, in a deco revival kind of way. I am of the mind that minimalism is a way to remove the female or the quote unquote fuss out of the equation. I think in this instance, you have all the warmth with the literal fire and the glow of the peach room with none of the must that men find so unattractive about femaleness. Basically, I think Lonnie Anderson's character was designed and then placed in a set that would make her glamorous enough to be reminiscent of the original film and also passive and soft enough for men to want to sleep with her. Regardless of her character's over-the-top likability, she makes an indelible impression as a, as a powerful woman because of her glamour, which is a mainstay of American cinema, made for TV or not. All of the women of the Sorry Wrong Number set exude a certain embodied femininity that feels borderline celebratory to me. This is achieved by leaning into the expectation of type. Stanwick is probably the most powerful example of this. She is fussy and feminine and angry and difficult. I still think she is right and her husband is an idiot. But even if you don't agree with me, you probably respect the honesty of her position. We so rarely get to see portrayals of women who are unlikable. Film noir is full of these types of female characters. The thing about likability, as I pointed out with Lonnie Anderson's character, is it is generally defined as fuckability. Passivity and long-suffering sweethearts are emblematic traits of this truth. Lonnie did walk away with glamour, which isn't the same as sexiness or likability, but it is its own power source and a respected one at that. Jessica Angela Lansbury escaped a lot of these pitfalls by finding the out which is essentially that she served her time as wife and now as a widow is free to function as a free agent. You could make the argument that making Jessica sexless is just as bad as making her likable as defined by sexiness. But this is a naive argument for 1980s television. I am more interested in seeing why that show and her character work so well during a very difficult time for feminist characters on television. And that show did work. It was the number one television show for years and is worth significant study. Jessica was the trope of spinsterhood, a retired school teacher with ultra femme quilts and doodads decorating her Cabot Cove cottage. It was these traits combined with the celebrated author of the show that made her embodied and palatable to the masses. This was the time period when feminism, specifically the working girl, was about putting away silly things and getting your tight ass to the office. Jess did neither of those things. In a lot of ways, she did things her way. Instead of seeking success in a world that would have her be different, the backflips done to make her character not offensive, ironically, made her a badass of network television. Next week on Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy, we will, do, we will dive deeper into film noir and the unlikable women that populate the genre. Please follow this podcast on Instagram at Window Dressing Podcast and like and subscribe the show on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Please, please, please. It really helps. Um, I'm Madeline Jane Auble signing off till next week. Bye.